February 7th, 2018. Turkey invades Rojava. The Zod wins. Indonesian Uber drivers stop being losers and start getting organized. Churches burn in Chile. Fascists get glitter bombed in Olympia. And calls of support for cop watcher Ramsey Orda and anarchist anti-fascist Tariq Khan on this episode of The Hotwire, a weekly anarchist news show brought to you by The Ex-Worker, with me, the Rebel Girl. Welcome to our second season of The Hotwire, and Happy New Year, or at least Happy End of 2017. At times, it felt like last year was never going to end. But with the worldwide New Year's Eve noise demonstrations against prisons and detention centers, 2017, in fact, ended with a bang. We're not going to try and catch up on everything we missed while we were off the air. But our sibling podcast, The Ex-Worker, just released their third year-in-review episode. It's really good, so check it out. Instead, we'll do like the rest of the anarchist movement and pick the pace right back up, Moving forward with the latest Rebel News. A full transcript of this episode with show notes and useful links can be found at our website, crimethink.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to The Hotwire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ex-Worker. You can listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero, or on your radio's dial in Eugene, Oregon, every Sunday at 11 a.m. on KEPW, 97.3 FM. Believe it or not, every hotwire is radio ready, so feel free to put the hotwire on your local airwaves. If there's a story or upcoming event you'd like us to include in a future hotwire, just hit us up at podcast at crimethink.com. And now, for the headlines. Over the first three days of February, workers at four different Burgerville locations in Portland, Oregon, went on strike. The workers are organized through the IWW and are calling for a boycott of Burgerville until the fast food chain agrees to affordable health care, safe and fair conditions, and $5 raises for hourly employees. We wish luck to the fighting Burgerville workers. In Indonesia, Uber drivers have flooded the ranks of Kuman, a union whose name means bacteria and who organize horizontally and alongside anarcho-syndicalist initiatives. Kuman sounds pretty badass. The union has 6,000 members, no dues, and one of their three membership questions is, are you a freedom fighter or a loser? Damn, am I a freedom fighter or a loser? Huh. In our show notes, we have a link to a super interesting interview about Kuman. Also, we hear they have t-shirts. If any listener can figure out how we can purchase one, we'll buy you one too. In New Orleans, several Bourbon Street strip clubs were raided on January 19th in a crackdown police claimed was targeting human traffickers. However, no arrests were made related to trafficking. Police used dancers' legal names in front of customers, filmed workers in lingerie without allowing them to get dressed, and shut down multiple clubs, taking away hundreds of jobs and further stigmatizing sex work. To fight back, workers at the targeted clubs have gotten organized with BEAR, the Bourbon Alliance of Responsible Entertainers. They've been elevating their stories and crashing the press conferences and meetings of city officials who are trying to shut them out and standing up for the dignity and respect that they deserve. 
In our show notes, we have a link to an anarchist feminist essay on sex work, written by a worker from the industry. On February 4th, people danced to anti-police music and made a racket outside the Chrome Immigrant Detention Center in Miami, Florida. In their report back on It's Going Down, they remind us that while Trump has called for an expansion of such detention centers, his administration follows on the heels of Obama's, who deported record numbers of immigrants and who signed contracts with private prison corporations for daily quotas of immigrant detainees. On January 15th, MLK Day, inmates throughout Florida launched a prison work strike against prison slavery, disenfranchisement, the death penalty, and toxic conditions. The strike was dubbed Operation Push, and over a dozen facilities have reported some kind of strike activity. The best updates can be found at fighttoxicprisons.org and on the Facebook page of Spark, S-P-A-R-C, who state that detailed information is only beginning to trickle out, and it has included details of the repression, retaliation, and even torture faced by prisoners in striking facilities. Go to fighttoxicprisons.org for updates and to learn how to support Operation Push. For the last two weekends, the ultra-nationalist Patriot Prayer Group has showed up to harass patients and abortion defenders at Planned Parenthood in Olympia, Washington. And for the last two weekends, Patriot Prayer members retreated after anti-fascists covered them in glitter. We have full reports linked in our show notes, along with a beautiful banner from one of the confrontations that reads... Patriotism is patriarchy, patriarchy is violence, body autonomy forever. Hundreds confronted about 50 nationalists on Sunday during a patriot picnic in San Diego's Chicano Park. Some were there to defend the park's cultural heritage, while others came out primarily to oppose the fascist presence at the picnic. As the nationalists left the park under heavy police escort, skirmishes broke out and one cop was punched in the face. In Toronto, on January 27th, anti-fascists from the IWW's General Defense Committee and Toronto Against Fascism outnumbered Pegida Canada, the Proud Boys, and other Islamophobes, three to one. The anti-Muslim racists attempt to march down the sidewalk, but anti-fascists outflanked them, passing out information about the racist march behind them to every passerby. The racists, mocked and confronted by anti-fascists in front of them, were quickly demoralized and gave up on marching. Two days later, in Fort Collins, Colorado, anti-fascists physically fought neo-Nazis from the Traditionalist Workers' Party outside an event hosted by Turning Point USA, an alt-light, far-right group that targets campuses. What started as a simple rally with DSA and Food Not Bombs tables turned into a series of clashes after campus police pushed anti-fascist protesters into a group of 12 neo-Nazis. Unsurprisingly, the cops did nothing when Nazis assaulted people with flashlights, shields, and yelled racial slurs. But they cooperated with the Nazis once anti-fascists fought back. After multiple fights, anti-fascists eventually drove the Nazis off campus. For fans of Nazi-punching videos, the Unicorn Riot video from Fort Collins has a pretty funny scene of a Nazi getting whacked with a cane. On January 19th, the Turkish government announced the start of their offensive into Afrin, one of the autonomous cantons of the revolutionary democratic co-federalist region of Rojava, or Western Kurdistan. 
demonstrations in solidarity with Rojava and against Turkish aggression have been held in Boston, New York, D.C., and San Francisco. To find out more, we spoke with Flint Arthur from the group Stand with Afrin. Hello. Yeah, this is Flint Arthur with USA Stand with Afrin. And I'm giving an update about what activists are doing in the United States in regards to helping support Afrin while it comes under attack by the second largest army in NATO, the army of President Erdogan of Turkey. So just to give an update on people what's going on, uh, it's been about 15 days since uh, Erdogan started his attack. So far, over 148 civilians have been killed and more than 355 have been wounded. You know, Turkey has attacked at several points around the Afrin Canton, mostly from the north, while the Yepige and Yepige have been providing a large uh, amount of resistance to those attacks. Turkey has made very little progress into Afrin so far, uh, but has continued to do airstrikes throughout the area, including on civilians and even on uh, Hevesor, the Kurdish Red Crescent there that provides medical aid to people. Of course, Turkey's role in all this is not just to suppress uh, Kurdish autonomy and democratic uh, principles in northern Syria. Uh, Turkey's real role in all this is suppressing their own Kurdish population in Turkey. And uh, they've been doing that for years. So with this ongoing, people have been demonstrating and protesting to raise awareness of what's going on in Afrin. Uh, there are demonstrations going on around the country, and we actually encourage anarchists, activists who are concerned about this to actually organize their own demonstrations. You don't have to wait for Kurdish people to give you the go-ahead or, you know, necessarily partner with an organization because those organizations simply might not exist where you are. So you can find us with Stand with Afrin, and you can find us in all the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. You can connect with us up that way. You can also connect up with us with groups like Friends of Rojava in North America. For more on the Turkish military's assault on Afrin, check out the recent episode of The Final Straw, which features an interview with a Tev Dem youth movement participant. For more background on the revolutionary cantons of Rojava, check out episodes 36 and 39 of The Ex-Worker. During a visit to Chile in mid-January, the Pope patronizingly told indigenous Mapuche land defenders to give up on their armed struggle against the police and capitalist industry that occupy their lands because, quote, violence begets violence. Um, yeah, Popey? You mean like the so-called war of pacification in which the Chilean state slaughtered Indians and conquered Mapuche territory? Or how about the hydroelectric and logging companies? who wage war on the land bases that Mapuche communities have lived from since time immemorial. You need to be completely brainwashed in Catholic morality to somehow see the impunity and violence of the state against poor Indians as somehow equal to acts of resistance taken to defend their lives and their ancestral land. In response to the Pope's hypocrisy, two different sets of anarchists claimed a total of six attacks on Catholic churches in Santiago. Both groups left behind communiques, explaining the anarchist and anti-colonial bases for their attacks. However, neither crew disrupted the Pope's visit as substantially as one uncontrollable police horse in the northern city of Iquique. As the Pope-mobile inched slowly closer toward the horse, she saw the evil of two millennia of patriarchal oppression, indigenous genocide, 
and moralistic indoctrination burning in the eyes of the Holy See's highest. She decided now was the time to put her horseshoe down and say, damn it all to hell. Life? Afterlife? What good is either while authorities, earthly or otherwise, break my back and poison my mind? No more inhibitions. Will I continue to suffer through hell on earth in exchange for a post-blue factory paradise? I say nay. Ahem. Or at least we imagine that's what the horse was thinking. Because as the Pope passed, she bucked at him and dumped the officer on her back to the ground. We have a gif of it in our show notes. The same week as the Pope's visit, anarchist prisoner Tamara Sol Vergara was involved in an attempted escape from her prison on Chile's coast. Tamara is now badly wounded and her family could use some support. We have a link in our show notes. Tamara is the niece of Rafael and Eduardo Vergara, the revolutionary leftist brothers whose execution is remembered and avenged every year on Day of the Young Combatant. Oof. Turkey invading Rojava? Fascists still amassing and harassing. And we haven't even got to the repression roundup. You know what they say. No news is good news. So we wanted to end our headline segment with some recent victories. Well, partial victories at least. First and foremost, we want to congratulate the six defendants from the first J-20 trial. On December 21st, the winter solstice, at 11.30 a.m., precisely when the Earth turns back towards the sun, the jury in the first J-20 trial announced that they had reached a verdict, a full acquittal of all six defendants on all charges. We want to thank those six defendants for their courage in going to trial first. By doing so, They brought exposure to the case, forced the government's hand, and a month later the prosecutor had to drop the cases against 129 more defendants. Well done! For a more fleshed-out analysis of the first J-20 trial, check out the most recent episode 63 of The Ex-Worker. Of course, this is just a partial victory. 59 defendants have trials coming up throughout the rest of 2018 with the next group set to begin on March 26th. Supporters are calling for those who can to pack the courthouse throughout the trial. If you know, or are, one of the defendants whose case was dropped, there is an excellent open letter to former J-20 defendants found on itsgoingdown.org. It includes great ways to remain involved in supporting the 59 comrades still facing charges as well as a very useful list of do's and don'ts. Like, still don't talk or speculate about anyone's intent or activity on J-20. Do email defendj20resistance at riseup.net if you are considering speaking to the media about the case. And don't allow the possibility of charges being refiled to give the government the power to continue to repress social movements and bolster a culture of paranoia. In our show notes, we have a link to the open letter to former defendants, as well as other up-to-date information on how to support the 59 remaining J-20 defendants. Meanwhile, on Sunday, thousands of people in Philadelphia assaulted police officers, overturned cars, and ascended the gates of City Hall because their sports team won? Seriously? People will riot because of football, but not because we won't have a planet in 50 years? And don't expect any rioting or conspiracy charges to fall upon Sunday's sports fans, at least not on the scale of J-20. 
Rioting charges aren't about destruction or violence. They're about maintaining the status quo. Props to the couple who stole that police horse, though. While our reporting normally focuses on protests, blockades, anti-fascist confrontations, and the like, we're happy to report that a score of awesome, base-building activities took place around the country on the anniversary of Trump's inauguration. Minneapolis, Richmond, Austin, San Francisco, Knoxville, Chicago, Columbus, Bloomington, Fort Collins, Carbondale, Asheville, Pittsburgh, Albany, Worcester, Brattleboro, and Carborough, North Carolina all held benefit events for the J-20 defendants, many screening the new Global Uprisings documentary, Antifa, which is so good. You can find a link for it in our show notes. In Washington, D.C., anarchists held a sarcastic memorial for the Starbucks windows broken during Trump's inauguration. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the day our lives were shattered along with this window. It pains me to reflect back on this, but we have to look clearly at what happened. We lost this window. It was always transparent with us. I, for one, choose to see the glass half full, not half empty, or I guess in this case, half broken. It is survived by its brother, a McDonald's window, and its cousin, a mirror. In Denver, a festival of anti-Trump punk bands was headlined by Anti-Flag, who invited a former J-20 defendant to speak from the stage about the need to support the 59 defendants left. We have been honored and privileged this entire tour to be partnered with some amazing organizations. Tonight, we are especially blessed to have our friends from Defend J-20 with us. myself included, um, resisting Donald Trump's inauguration in D.C. Which was awesome until the state came back and gave every single one of us eight felony charges. For yes. And it's a direct intentional attack on anarchists, on anti-fascists and anti-capitalists. And, you know, and the entire court and prison system is an intentional attack on anyone who stands up to white supremacy and to fascism and to capitalism and the state. And most often that is black and brown, immigrant, indigenous, and poor folks who challenge that system just by existing, okay? And so it's up to all of us, but being here is not enough. Saying what you say on the internet is not enough. You need to be in the streets. You need to organize. You need to figure out what it means to be active to be actively resisting the state, okay? We all need to do that. We need to make punk a threat again, all right, y'all? And I'm not gonna tell you to get out there and vote because I don't really believe in voting. I want us to fight until we burn down every prison, until this state is completely just abolished and we make something new from its ashes, okay? Red and anarchist skinheads in Portland, Oregon, held a Rock Against Fascism event on J20 2018 that brought out hundreds. Groups like Rose City Antifa and the IWW's General Defense Committee tabled while DJs played reggae and soul tracks in between bands. Reading the full report back, illustrated with awesome photos, 
help this rebel girl keep the faith. J20 defendants and anti-fascists everywhere, you'll never walk alone. In other partial victory news, we are happy to report that the ZAD, or Zone to Defend, has forced the French government to say uncle on the half a billion euro airport project once slated for the now squatted 1600 hectare site in Notre Dame des Landes. We caught up with Camille, Camille, and Camille from the ZAD about this recent announcement and why they see it as only a partially tubular victory. Camille. <laughs> everybody, yeah, everybody's called Camille in the ZAD because it's, it's a name that works for everybody. For everybody, for all. There's no sex, uh, no gender. gender, the name. So everybody's called Camille. So we can say more about the ZAD maybe. It's kind of autonomous area that exists almost 10 years. It is existing. And at the beginning, it's a struggle against an airport. And people are that live in this area are struggling till the 70s. And then they called for other people to come and occupy the lands and the farms to help them. So people came. And since 10 years, they are trying like a different kind of society to live in autonomy, material autonomy, but especially political one. So try to organize horizontal. Do you say horizontally? And trying to do uh, their own justice, trying to live in without the state, without the cops. And also at the same time doing agriculture on this occupied area that is something like 2,000 hectares. I think there are like 200 people living there in the ZAD. But it's, the struggle is more like a movement. It's not just only anarchist people living squatting the lands it's a movement with so much people different and that's which is um, interesting since t 2012 when they tried to evict the area and they lost because a lot of people came there fighting uh, building barricades and trying to push the cops away and it worked so we had the feeling that in the last four or five years, they were just trying to figure out how not to build the airport, how to do something legal and not to be so ashamed about not doing the airport. Like exit lane. They were looking for exit lane. And now they found it. The government said there's no airport anymore, but asked for um, have the roads cleaned and free because especially the one where there were barricades was, was still with people living on the roads for defending the, the ZAD and the road. And what happened is that people, how do you say, the liberal, mm -hmm. that are fighting also against yeah. the airport, say, okay, but we don't want the cops to come. We want to do it by ourselves. And everybody together opened the street, they destroyed the cabins and all the barricades. It was so hard for people because they w that's the symbol of what everybody was fighting for. It's a victory against the airport, but there's a lot of work to do. Since 2007, for 10 years, we are not just only farming on the side. There's a lot of things like mechanics or radio. Radio is maybe a good example because... Uh, it's a pirate radio. It's illegal to do it. 
and maybe it will not be possible to continue like that because we, if we are negotiate with the state, it will ask for some compromises. And also, we said a lot in France to people to try to do the struggle in the place where they are living. In. What is really strong for the ZAD in France is that it's an example of a struggle that works. And a lot of people were coming and looking with their eyes that it is possible. So coming back to their place where they are coming and say, okay, there's a project in my in the corner where we are living and I don't like it. There's a, a mall project, airport, uh, highway. And was really example that it's possible if we do things together. Last in our list of recent partial victories is the two-day-long government shutdown that happened in January. Okay, so we can't actually claim this as a victory. It was caused by incompetent statecraft at the federal level rather than coordinated anarchist activity from below. But it still afforded CrimeThink.com the opportunity to release the opinion piece Government Shutdown Doesn't Go Far Enough, Make the Shutdown Comprehensive and Permanent. We'll quote from it at length. What if the government does shut down? Who will funnel our taxable income to military contractors? Who will tap our phones and read our email? Who will raid 7-Elevens and deport people? Who will stop people from driving while black? It doesn't sound all that bad, actually. Unfortunately, the shutdown they're talking about won't interrupt any of those things. Compared to what this country needs, it's just a bit of theatrics. Let's be clear. The ones who are most worried about a government shutdown are the politicians themselves. Not for the reasons they claim. No, they're worried because a real shutdown could just show how pointless and parasitic their entire protection racket is. They're worried that if we got a taste of what it's like to organize collectively to solve our problems, we'll never want to stop. To read the full text of Government Shutdown Doesn't Go Far Enough, just head over to crimethink.com where you can also find one tragic piece of news that we are heartbroken to report. On January 22nd, anarchist science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin departed from the world of the living. Le Guin penned gender-defying science fiction like The Left Hand of Darkness, as well as perhaps the most imaginatively fleshed-out portrait of an actual existing anarchist society in The Dispossessed, this Rebel Girl's all-time favorite science fiction book. On Twitter, acclaimed writers like Neil Gaiman and Margaret Atwood praised her genius and wished her, in the words of Stephen King, Godspeed into the galaxy. While celebrity authors remembered Ursula primarily as a writer, CrimeThink published We Will Remember Freedom, why it matters that Ursula K. Le Guin was an anarchist. The eulogy ends with a beautiful quote of Le Guin's from 2014. Hard times are coming, when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds for hope. We'll need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality. We have a radio play adaptation of The Dispossessed and other writings by Ursula Le Guin linked in this episode's show notes at crimethink.com slash podcast. 
In this week's Repression Roundup, in late January, nine humanitarian aid workers from the Arizona-based group No More Deaths were charged with felonies of, quote, abandoning property while trespassing in a wildlife refuge. If you need a translation, that means leaving out jugs of water so that migrants don't die of dehydration while crossing the desert. The charges came days after No More Deaths published a report detailing how Border Patrol agents routinely sabotage water containers left in the desert, essentially condemning migrants to one of the worst deaths imaginable. We'll continue to report on this story and how you can support the No More Deaths 9. For an in-depth account of humanitarian solidarity along the U.S.-Mexico border, check out CrimeThink's book, No Wall They Can Build, published last year. We have anti-border zines, posters, and stickers linked in our show notes at crimethink.com slash podcast. Water protectors Red Fawn Fallis, Rattler, and Michael Littlefeather Geron have accepted plea agreements in their cases stemming from 2016's No Dapple struggle at Standing Rock. We'll keep you updated on how to write the No Dapple political prisoners as details come. The Dakota Access Pipeline continues to operate, having leaked five times since coming online. Ramsey Orta, the cop watcher who used his phone to film Eric Garner's murder by the NYPD, has been placed in solitary confinement. Orta is in prison due to a campaign of retaliation and harassment by the NYPD. We have his address in our show notes so you can send him letters, or you can find it yourself at RamseyOrta.com. For the one-year anniversary of the prison uprising at Vaughn Correctional Center in Delaware, the block party folks over at It's Going Down released an interview with former Vaughn prisoner Thomas Gordon. Block Party introduces the interview by describing the uprising, quote, Inmates in the C building took control of their unit and held staff hostage. They called the media, released a list of immediate demands, and explained their actions as motivated by the conditions of confinement as well as the election of Donald Trump as president. One prison guard, Stephen Floyd, was killed by inmates during the uprising. The interview is great and well worth a listen. Check it out at itsgoingdown.org. The Anarchist Black Cross of the Rhineland has put out a call of support for nine activists arrested in January during a barricade eviction in the Hambach Forest. Go to abcrhineland.blackblogs.org for more details. And for an in-depth look at the Hambach Forest occupation, listen to the Ex-Workers episode 37, all about the struggle to save the forest. Since November 2016, anarchist organizer and Ph.D. student Tariq Khan has been targeted by members of the alt-like group Turning Point USA. TPUSA members and other fascists have doxxed Tariq, made multiple threats against his family, and gotten him in a bogus disciplinary case with the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. After a year of harassment, Tariq is asking for support. He's asking, one, for sympathetic journalists to help expose Turning Point USA's harassment. Two, for people to call or write into the university to respectfully but firmly demand that they drop all charges against him. And lastly, he's looking for organizations to make public statements of support for him. If you can help with any of these asks, and seriously, writing his university just takes a couple minutes. Check out our show notes for a link with more details. We're with you, Tariq. And finally, 
stay tuned to at DefendJ20 on Twitter for details on packing the courtroom for the next trial, scheduled to begin March 26th. We'll close out this hotwire with next week's news, our list of events that you can plug into in real life. The Stop Spencer Coalition at Michigan State University has announced plans to oppose Richard Spencer's visit on March 5th. On Monday, they hosted a public discussion with over 100 community members, university workers, and students in attendance. They're encouraging all who oppose fascism to begin making plans to travel to East Lansing for March 5th and make Richard Spencer's visit impossible. Anarchist Black Cross Moscow has announced from now to February 12th, a week of solidarity with anarchists and anti-fascist prisoners in Russia. In October, the Russian state raided a series of houses in St. Petersburg and Penza, accusing anti-fascists of creating a terrorist group. Then in January, police rounded up even more comrades and tortured testimony out of them. All forms of solidarity are welcome, but ABC Moscow emphasizes the need for monetary contributions which they can accept in the form of PayPal, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. In March, folks on the West Coast can expect a J20 Solidarity speaking tour. If you're out West and it's been hard for you to make sense of the J20 case, this is the perfect opportunity to be brought up to speed before the next batch of trials. If you want to help set up a speaking date, email westcoastj20tour at riseup.net. The second annual Institute for Advanced Troublemaking will take place from July 21st to the 29th in Worcester, Massachusetts. The Institute for Advanced Troublemaking is a week-long summer school in anarchist theory and action, open to adults of all ages. The IAT already has a pretty robust list of confirmed courses and facilitators available on their website, advancedtroublemaking.wordpress.com. And lastly, our first ever wish list is up at crimethink.com, entitled, What We Need From You. It lists, well, what we need from you. It includes how you can help with speaking events, translation, editing, signal boosting, web design, printing and art, video, and last but not least, technological and written contributions for the ex-worker and the hotwire. One big ask we have this season is for listeners to reach out to local community radio stations to see if they will carry our show regularly. Go to crimethink.com to see the full wish list and to help the hotwire get played on your local airwaves. Send us an email at podcast at crimethink.com. And that's it for this episode of the hotwire. As always, thanks to Underground Reverie for the music and thanks to Camille, 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 and Flint for the tubular interviews. Don't forget to check out all the links, mailing addresses, and useful notes we customized for this episode at crimethink.com. Every hotwire is radio ready, so if you want to replay part or all of this show, just go for it. We can also edit episodes down to specific time constraints if you email us at podcast at crimethink.com. You can also send us news or announcements to include in the future. Stay informed. Stay rebel. Plug into the hotwire. Back on Eurus, when Oda first talked about anarchism, they locked her up. 
finally they killed her. The very idea of freedom terrified people on Eurus. But on this planet, we are free. <laughs>